Hello guys and welcome to the Peaks and Valleys podcast. On this podcast, we talk coffee, culture, and mental health. I'm your host, Jonathan Coggins, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kyle Ridgely. What's up guys? My name's Kyle. So glad you're joining us and I hope you enjoy this episode. Thinking of a day, won't see your face on another t-shirt. I know it's bad, but it hurts. Same day, new face, old pain, rerun, headline, heartbreak. Pray to God that peace will find me. What is up, guys, and welcome to another episode of the Peaks and Valleys podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Coggins, and I'm joined by my co-host, the one and only Kyle Ridgely. What's up? Today on the podcast, um, we're going to be talking about something that's um, it's a very loaded topic. It's a very heavy, a um, lot of layers and nuance, but we find it... a a very necessary conversation. Um, And we're so um, just humbled um, that um, our guest that is joining us today um, has, you know, agreed to come on and have this conversation with us. Um, His name is EJ Gaines. Um, But before I let him introduce himself, I just want to kind of, for this episode, lay some, just some really foundational things going into this episode. Um, we're going to be talking about and really kind of, you know, unpacking a lot of, a, a lot of, like I said, heavy things. Um, but just know that, um, and, and, and I think EJ would agree with this. Me and Kyle don't speak for all white people, um, you know, and, and I think EJ would agree that he does not speak for all uh, black people or people of color. Um, these are just our perspectives, our thoughts. Um, and just how do we navigate this and move forward? Um, and even though these things are, are heavy, um, there is that aspect of work. We're really trying to come at this with some grace, with some compassion, um, because we're all here believers. We, we love Jesus. And, and so we, we know that the gospel and that needs to be central to this conversation. Um, so with all that, um, I'll go ahead and give it over to EJ just to introduce yourself, um, tell um, our listeners a little bit about yourself, um, what you do, et cetera. Yeah, well, thank you. And that was a that was a great um, a great foundation to lay because, I, you know, I think uh, that's something that we always have to keep in mind, especially when we're having conversations like this that are a little bit tougher. Um, is that, you know, no one is monolithic and no one has all the answers. We're, we're having conversations and that's like literally where it starts. That's, that's the starting point. Um, and I think it's always important to, to tread into conversations delicately, compassionately and full of grace. Um, so right on for that. So my name is EJ Gaines. I am, um, a music executive and an attorney, um, and based in Nashville, really outside of Nashville, Franklin, Tennessee where I live with my wife, who's a a recording artist and and a speaker and an author. Um, And we live here with our two little boys uh, who are are, uh, one toddler and one, uh, one, well, he's not newborn anymore. He's one, but um, it feels like my little newborn. Um, And we're just, you know, we're trying to, um, we're trying to do life in a way that honors God and that honors one another. 
Um, and you know, that's, that's sometimes easier, uh, than it is, uh, but then it's sometimes really hard. So <laughs> it's just, I guess that's just the way life is as a believer. Right. But, um, that's really me in a nutshell. The the conversations um, on race that I've been fortunate enough to engage in have really been um, on the basis of the fact that I'm a black guy um, in America, and that's that's the only qualification that I have. I don't know that it is, is even a qualification, um, but it definitely gives me a unique perspective and some experiences that are different. And I guess um, I, I have found an incredible amount of joy and fulfillment in sharing my perspective with people who want to hear about it uh, with an open mind. Um, I have no stones to throw. I've got no condemnation to, to dish out. And so I guess that has probably made me um, someone who people have enjoyed speaking to about things. Um, and to be honest, I have a very diverse community of friends and family um, that, that make me very sensitive to not wounding people in these conversations and really just wanting the best for everybody so that we can be as close to unified as we possibly can. And in a way that God uh, would be honored. Awesome, man, EJ. Thank, thank you for, again, thank you for just being here and be willing to have this conversation with us um, first off. Um, yeah. and, and thanks for the introduction. Um, you know, thanks for just sharing a little bit about, um, yourself with our listeners and, and, you know, kind of where you're at, what you're about, man. Absolutely. So I really want to start this out with a very, very, very important um, question for you. And I think this is like a, a pivotal question to this conversation. Um, mm -hmm. So we, we've, we talked about, you know, in, in our pre-chat zoom, like you had your, your cup of coffee, you know, you, you we shared that we were like, we loved coffee. Okay. I'm sipping mine right now. <laughs> All right. So the important question is, since we talk about coffee on this podcast and it's important to us, what is your favorite coffee? Um, anything that is accessible and hot. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty non-discriminating on this and it's shameful. Sometimes I will do, I will do gas station coffee. I will do <laughs> <laughs> uh, when I did jury duty years ago, I did courthouse coffee. I will do um, break room coffee. You know, I will do airplane coffee, um, but I will also go to a coffee place. Now, I will say this, and this is real. I, I know that it's better somehow intrinsically, like the pour overs and the amount of time that it takes to like, you know, really draw the espresso or whatever is happening. I just want it quick. I don't want it to take a long time. I don't appreciate any part of this process. I just want it in my cup. And <laughs> I, think that, I think that that's wrong. I know that it's wrong. I know that it's wrong to say it. Um, and, and I know that I'm supposed to appreciate like 10 minutes of, of a good like, hey, you know, I'm going to make your coffee for you. But I don't appreciate it yet. I, I should, but I don't yet. Um, so any way I can get it. Now, I will say this, and this is the last thing on coffee that I feel like I have to say. What are the coffee beans where the goats, um, where it's like this a delicacy in some country? I don't remember where it is, but it's like goat poop or like or lamb, like something. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's called Kopi Luau. Um, yes, yes, yeah, and, and it's they're they're like little like cats type things. Cats. Yeah. So is that like have you had that? You I have had, had that actually. Had that. 
and I rejected it. I said, I am not drinking any of that. <laughs> Are you kidding me? You didn't try it? No. I just... What did it taste like? Um, I mean, it was, it would, I mean, it wasn't like the best coffee in the world, but it wasn't like, you know, crappy, you know, it was, it was, <laughs> no it was mediocre at best. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was it was more like just the experience of it, you know. Was that pun intended? Was the pun <laughs> that was it was great. It wasn't crappy. <laughs> yeah, man, cool. Well, like I said, you know, fellow coffee lovers, we talk about coffee in this podcast. I had to ask you, you know. Um, so yeah, thank you, thank yeah, you, yeah, man. Um, and also, what what type of attorney are you? Uh, I'm an entertainment attorney. Um, okay. I okay. To, gotcha. I used to do transactional, uh, transactional intellectual property stuff, and then um, built a practice before I started at the music company that I'm at now. Um, and I and I represented artists and songwriters and producers and television actors and film people. Mm-hmm. Um, just really, I've always been in the entertainment space. I just love it. I love the the ability um, that music and entertainment have to connect people mm-hmm. um, and to heal people and to provide hope to people. Uh, and I've just always really been passionate about that as an occupation. Very nice. Awesome, man. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, the the first thing um, I really want to hit on in this conversation, um, you you were talking about you just as a black man in America, you have a unique perspective in this conversation on race because you're a you're a black man in America, right? Mm-hmm. Um. And so just kind of, if you would, just kind of give us that perspective, that experience um, as a black man um, in America or, you know, as um, a believer, a follower of Jesus, as a black man in the church. Um, And I I got some follow up kind of why it matters to listen to this stuff, um, how, you know, mental health can actually intersect in this conversation. Um, Mm So yeah, yeah. I um, you know, so I my identity is as a follower of Christ. I am I am, I am a child of the King of all creation, and mm-hmm. that's where that, that that's just that's what I wake up and I put on uh, any point at any point that I forget that uh, as as critical to my identity, I'm going to be in trouble, um, and that is what I lead with. That's what I, that's, that's, if I had to be distilled, I would want that to be the, the essence of who I am is, um, is that my identity is hidden in Christ. Um, but as I am also in this world, um, and in this, in this body, um, that has melanin and pigment in the skin and the implications of that in America are, um, are far reaching and, and, and have been far reaching and, I don't say any of this to make people feel shame or feel, you know, uh, feel sad by it. But, you know, I think it's important to understand that people and I'm going to use terms like minority or majority and and race and ethnicity interchangeably in different ways. And so I, I hope that doesn't throw anyone off. But um, I think that most minorities uh, or people belonging to a minority group in America would say that they feel like second class citizens here and and that everything in society everything that is a way of life underscores the fact that you are not priority and you don't belong here 
you're allowed, you don't belong and you don't belong. Or if you do belong, you don't belong as much as. And, you know, I don't know how to feel any other way because this is just my, this is the extent of my existence. So I've always been a black guy in America. So I don't know what it feels like to not feel that way. But I've come to learn through relationships with very close friends that white people generally don't feel that. Um, at least not on the basis of their skin color. Um, there are nuances to um, to me having certain skin color and how uh, genetically, you know, hair grows or the color of my skin and different things that are unique to me that um, that I think I have to live with and consider in a way that a lot of my white friends and family have never even thought of. For example. Um, shaving. You know, I am not able to shave with a razor. I have to use an electric razor. So, you know, these places in the malls like Art of Shaving or a shaving cream commercial, I wouldn't buy shaving cream ever. Like it doesn't even occur to me. I don't know where you would even get shaving cream. I don't know how to put shaving cream on myself. And I don't know any black man who does. But I say that to a lot of my white friends and they're like, wait, what do you mean? And it's like, right, that's how vastly different our worlds are. I am I am aware of that, but most white people don't have to know that. They don't have to know that um, that black men shave differently, or they don't have to think of the fact that. And I use this a lot, but until last year, when Johnson and Johnson made this big declaration in 2020 that uh, they were going to have different colored band aids, band aids that were flesh toned were the color of white people, and there was no darker skin band aid. Imagine how degrading it is to hear that flesh tone is not your skin color. Yeah. That's just what we live in. And it's fine to everybody. It's just fine. It's just like, get tough. Or um, go to the hair care aisle at Target and there's hair care, but then there's ethnic hair care. Meaning if your hair needs anything other than what white people need, you need to go over there. That's there now. And what it means is that when I go to Target, it's racial. It has racial implications. Yes, something as silly as me going to Target has racial implications. I am aware of my citizenship, of my second class citizenship when I go to Target. And it's not something that white people ever have to think of. It's something that every black person thinks of every single time they walk into Target. And I know when I say that sometimes there's going to be a, there's going to be an option or a menu of responses. Some people are going to be heartbroken. Some people are going to be um, are going to be jaw dropped, and then other people are going to be dismissive because it doesn't feel good to think that all of society is this ha- has had this going on and you didn't know about it. What does it mean about you <laughs> if you're an adult mm-hmm. and if you're a believer? and you think that you're compassionate and full of grace and intentional about this race issue, and you didn't realize like all of these things. Um, and so you got to kind of choose where you're going to land in that regard. But these are, these are my realities. This is what I live with every single day. This is how life goes for me. And it's not just for me. It's for anyone who has my skin color. Um, and sometimes I try to take it out of the context of race, because I know it's a sticky issue, and I try to say, "Hey, left-handed, let's talk about left-handed people and right-handed people." If you if you're not left-handed and you don't know anyone who's left-handed, you don't even realize that measuring cups aren't workable by people who are left-handed. Hmm. 
because the numbers are backwards. And um, a left-handed person will never see cups on the front of it because they're going to hold it in the opposite direction that a right-handed person would. You have to have a left-handed measuring cup. Now, if you're right-handed, you didn't even know that left-handed measuring cups exist. So you definitely are buying one. And you definitely aren't going to be concerned when you go to the store and there isn't one in stock. But if you're left-handed, it means that you don't have a measuring cup for yourself. Hmm. That's a trivial example, but it's a good one because it demonstrates how inclined we are to think only about our experience. The problem is in a majority white culture, in a white America, if the people in power and the people who make decisions are thinking just like all of us would, primarily from our own experience, then what gets filtered down is the expectations of our experience, the abilities of our experience, the permissions of our experience, and anything that cuts against that is seen as odd. But I'm not odd, I'm just different. Hmm. And and what's what what is saddest about it and what's hardest about it is that's human nature. So that was going to be here, right? And someone was always going to be in power and they were going to have a certain skin color. So I'm not I'm not of the belief that all oh, white people are, you know, whatever. If they were black people, we would do, do the same things. It's just human nature. But um, when you add to it this dynamic of the history of America and the oppression that's been there um, and the systemic ways in which that's kind of, you know, played itself out, you get a real cluster, you know, and you really get a knot that only God can untangle. Um, and it doesn't help to act like it's not tangled. It is so, so, so tangled. It is so abysmally, depressingly tangled. It really, really is. And in comes the hope of Jesus Christ. Man, EJ, thanks for, you know, sharing that Um I, I love the example you used about um, the the measuring cups, you know, mm-hmm. the right-handed and the left-handed. Um, it, there, there's a pastor, Miles McPherson. Um, mm-hmm. He wrote a book called The Third Option. Um, it was basically this this idea that there are in-groups and there's out-groups um, and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, you're talking about, you know, white culture is the majority. Um, and then, you know, you have the minority um, culture, whether that be um, black or Hispanic, you know, whatever. Um, and like, I, I love the way that, you know, Miles frames it. And I, I feel like this is, you know, kind of talking about this thing, social justice, um, balancing the scales, equality, um, making the, you know, the out group and culture part of the in group, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, balancing those skills, you know, um, man, thank, thanks for, thanks for sharing just your experience, your, your worldview. Um, that's, uh, I, I hope, um, our listeners that don't, don't know about any of these inequalities will, will glean some understanding from this episode and from, from your perspective, man. Um, yeah. and, uh, you know, I, I mentioned that, you know, um, mental health, really intersects in this conversation um because you you mentioned that you know there'll there'll be a tendency in a lot of people to kind of say just just man up or whatever you know yeah um yeah. 
but I I've realized that that racial trauma is a real thing, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just because of the, I mean, just the decades long of you know oppression and slavery and um, segregation and so so many layers in this conversation. Um, we we actually we we did a did an episode about trauma and we we talked specifically about this kind of trauma about generational trauma um you know and and one thing that i've noticed um white culture for the most part um is very individualistic um where like um a black culture is more um collective more more communal than than a white culture would be um mm-hmm. and so like i've as i've talked to um the black people in my life i realized like whenever something like a, an Ahmaud Aubrey happens or a george floyd um you know or brianna taylor like it's not just felt by the friends and family that knew that person like it's felt by the community mm-hmm. you know um and so just really reframing, framing in that way and just realizing, okay, there, there's, we need to be empathetic to this um, because there, there's some trauma, there, there's some um, despair that comes along with this that we need to give space for um, our black brothers and sisters to really talk out. Um, and and th- this is, this is just where I'm at with it personally. Um, I, I am okay with this being a one-sided conversation you know, I, I'm okay with, you know, making space for, um, you know, any any black people that I come across to be weird with me or not really like me, you know, because it's understandable, you know. Um, I feel like when we give that space, um, then that that's when we can start having some conversations. That's when some real healing can start happening, when you just normalize the response to racial injustice. Yeah. Um, so, man, yeah, thank- I think that, you know, that I want to touch on that trauma piece because it's so, um, it's, it's so real. And it's, I think last year, last year, 2020 was a year in which um, the events that were happening surrounding Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor um, and, and then the Black Lives Matter protests, the riots, the, uh, you know, the discord that was going on surrounding those and the movement, um, they added this, this word trauma to our collective lexicon. And it became like, hey, how are you dealing with the trauma that comes along with race issues? And I think for the first time in a long, in a long time, people, no matter their race, were aware that this is a hard, emotionally gutting uh, reality to deal with. Um, and I was reading something recently. There's a, um, a pastor out in um, in Portland, John Mark Comer, you might know of him, um, yes. who um, has he released an ebook recently called On Suffering Lovingly. And he put this part in there that was talking about trauma uh, from a therapist and kind of this idea that um, trauma trauma has to kind of be processed relationally. Um, or, you know, when pain happens and it can't be processed relationally, it becomes trauma. And it's so it was such an, a startling idea to me um, because um, the black community and, and really any marginalized community have come together around their collective pain. You look at um, Jewish people who suffered under the Holocaust, they come together at that point of pain. 
Um, and uh, you look at Native Americans who are living on reservations and who have been, you know, uh, physically marginalized and moved out from their homes, they have come together at that point of pain. And I think you're right that um, there's a different way of living uh, within the white community. Um, they have not, on the basis of being white, um, experienced collective pain um, in that way. And so they've not had to come together um, in that way. You know, we, I, you can go to a high school graduation and the Black people are going to cheer for one another. We, I don't know your kid at all, but the idea that your Black kid is walking across the stage gives me joy as if it's my Black kid walking across the stage. That is just the running thing. And you can you can go to anyone's barbecue or celebration to talk about those uh, celebrations, those moments. And we celebrate one another because if you're going to make it out, quote unquote, if you're going to make it to the next level, then we've all made it to the next level somehow. And that that, that is that is a rich part of Black culture. And you, I mean, you even see it on like Black Twitter. And I don't know how familiar you are with it, but um, the idea of Black Twitter and the fact that it is this community within a social media network that doesn't have a home. You can't hashtag it or find it. It just happens. And it's a community-driven phenomenon that when social uh, or current events happen, that Black people find one another and we communicate with one another about things. It goes all the way back to the Underground Railroad, right? It's almost like this system of conversation, this system of communication, but it's all based in community. Um, that we do with one another. And I think it's very unique to um, marginalized cultures within a, within a society. Yeah, man. Awesome. Thank, thanks for really expounding on that more for us. Um, that's incredible. Justice and safety, goodness and mercy all around, all around. Favor and guidance, Freedom and kindness all around, all around. Power and patience and sweet liberation all around, all around. Let's see, the next thing I want to hit on. Um, so, so this one, it, I, when 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 you start talking about these things, my next point, I'm gonna preface with this. Um you'll either be called um woke, you know, and there's a lot of people that are anti-woke, um <laughs> cultural Marxist, um, that's a famous one. Um you believe in socialism, um like you, you're replacing the gospel with social justice, like all these kinds of things. Um, and so I really want to have a conversation about this specifically um, so we can kind of reframe it from a gospel perspective um, and realize that nobody's advocating for cultural Marxism. Nobody is, you know, like hates all white people, you know, Nobody, mm -hmm. like, hates the police, you know. You also get that one, you know. Um, you hate you hate the police. Sure. Sure. Um, which, which is all, like, you know, mischaracterizations and, you know, caricatures that people create because they haven't had conversations. Um, 
the the thing I want to hit on is systemic racism um, and white supremacy, um, okay. and really kind of talk about that, unpack it, um, because I, especially with white supremacy, I think when you bring that up, um, a lot of white people will jump to, well, you're calling all white people evil, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which that is not at all like, um, you know, what, you know, we're saying when we say white supremacy, yeah. um, because because I, I've had call, I've had conversations like I said, with a lot of uh, black people around me and black friends, and we've had conversations about white supremacy. Um, and when, 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 when somebody like, when you hear white supremacy and somebody jumps to where you're calling all white people evil, well, I, I've had a conversation with black people and we've talked about white supremacy and they don't hate me, you know? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, just, just some, just some examples, like as far as, you know, systemic racism, um, what kind of things I've I've got a few things jotted down, but, but what kind of things do you see, um, EJ, that the scales are unbalanced? There's, you know, injustice, some things that, that you, you know, as a black man in America, you like to see change, um, in the system, um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's systemic racism, I think, and you're right, because these are ideas that are so polarizing, you know, and they're buzzwords that if you say it, you've you've, you've ended the conversation. I don't know if you're familiar with Carlos Whitaker. He's a friend of mine who always, uh, he always, always, always says this, um, don't stand on issues, walk with people. Hmm. Hmm. And I love I've, that. Yeah. Like when I, 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 I follow, I follow Carlos, dude. I, I love his stuff. Um, I love the way he approaches these conversations. Um, yeah. and dude, as, as the first time he said that don't stand on issues, walk with people. Most of the time when I posted something about racism or systemic racism or white supremacy, um, mostly on my Facebook, I, I usually followed up with that. Like, don't yeah. stand on issues, walk with people, you know? Yeah. So I, I love that saying. Yeah. It's a big one because it really, you know, that that's, that's how we defang, you know, socialism and cultural Marxism and, and systemic racism and white supremacy. You know, you throw these buzzwords around or we see them on social media or in the news and all of a sudden people, well, they don't like walk, they run to their side mm-hmm. and it's, it's like, Hey, 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 hey come back. I'm back. I'm just going to talk about the phrase. You don't have to like run to where you are so that you don't get any socialism on you, you know, like just stay with us and talk, stay, let's stay together and talk. Um, systemic racism is really this idea that, um, that, and, and it makes to me a lot of sense. Um, and a lot of people don't agree that it exists, but it is the idea that certain things happen in society that have an effect of systemically, meaning institutionally, disparaging a people group. Um, Now this would make tons and tons of sense if we go back to just like late 1800s, 1865-ish, you know, when we're talking about civil war, slavery ending, um, apart from the 400 plus years of oppression before that. um, We have to acknowledge that where America or where Black people were given freedom in America, um, we didn't start at equal places in the race 
<laughs> we were already behind. The land had already been doled out to people. Hmm. Um, property had been purchased. If this were a race, people would have been run, have running been running for four hundred years before we were allowed to start. So the idea of of picking yourself up by your bootstraps, I couldn't pick myself up 400 years worth of bootstraps. I could not I could not work hard enough or attain enough wealth or enough education to un to 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 level the playing field. So at every hand, one people group is 400 plus years ahead of us in the race. Hmm. And then through Jim Crow laws and segregation and you can't eat here and you can't drink there. And if you build this and then don't forget about home loans and how the government federally mandated and allowed loans to be given to some people and not others or voter suppression and how certain people groups um, had to take tests that had trick questions. And we have the, the copies of the tests exist. Like this is a real thing. This is not this is not folklore had tests with trick questions that if they failed, they couldn't vote or if they failed, they couldn't get a mortgage. Hmm. And so then all of, and, and this is government sanctioned. And then you had laws that allowed discrimination on the basis of skin color. That's hmm. systemic racism. Hmm. And, and just because the laws don't exist that do that on their face anymore, just because we've taken away, Hey, you can't discriminate on the basis of skin color. And that's a law that, doesn't mean that systemic racism doesn't a have a lasting effect to like right now because just 60 years ago you could not ride on a bus hmm. just 60 we're not talking like 200 years. i'm talking like you know in in my mother's lifetime she could not drink from the same water fountain as a white person yeah and so we're talking about the lasting effects of that but then beyond that even and this is the, on the legal side it's not going to be fun for anyone necessarily unless you are an attorney but um, in, in constitutional law, there's this idea of things that are discriminatory on their face versus discriminatory by their effect. So mm -hmm. even though you can have something that's not discriminatory on its face, for example, um, uh, there can be a law that says no child is allowed to get to school through a school bus. You have to be dropped off by a parent between these hours. That's not racially discriminatory on its face. But does it affect people differently? Hmm. Well, when you look at statistics and you can see, okay, well, a lot of the black students in this you know, school district are living, for example, maybe in a home that doesn't have a car hmm. or that has a single parent home and the single parent works during the time that they would normally have put their kid on the school bus. Suddenly you see the effect of this law that seems innocent affecting black people differently than it affects white people. And that is systemic racism. That's not hatred. It's not. And I think a lot of times people hear racism and they think hatred. My wife does a diversity training um, called Braving the Deep, where she, one of the things that she says is racism is not a machine that spews hatred. It's a machine that spews lies. And then, then those lies deteriorate into things like hatred. Um, racism is an idea that is perpetuated by things that happen in society. White supremacy is an idea that is perpetuated by things that happen in society and perpetuated by people. So I'm really, I'm really, you're rarely going to call, see me call anybody a white supremacist or a racist. I might say that someone did something that perpetuates an idea of white supremacy hmm. 
or I saw a law that perpetuates the idea of racism. Um, because a lot of the things that we collectively do in life perpetuate isms and ideologies, mm-hmm. whether you're a Christian and you're perpetuating <laughs> Christianity, or you are someone who believes that you are superior to another race and you perpetuate mm-hmm. supremacy. Yeah, for sure. Um, EJ, that's awesome. I mean, all that, all those facts that you gave and the insight um, into that. Um, I know that uh, for me, I think the one thing that I notice a lot uh, with just the general overarching uh, white, my group of white brothers and sisters uh, is that they don't acknowledge, like you said, the history. They don't acknowledge how, uh, how, how recent some of this stuff is um that i mean it was about i guess you'd say 50 something years ago now um with the roe versus wade and, and things like yeah. that um it, it it's so it's so fresh it's something that's so um we just can't overlook it we can't um just push it up under the rug and even further as we go back uh we look at uh the imperialism uh, age of imperialism which was in the mm-hmm. 19th century which perpetuated a lot of uh, discriminatory ideologies, particularly surrounded by social Darwinism. Um, and I know I've talked about this on this podcast before, and it was no social Darwinism and the age of imperialism was characterized by the phrase, the white man's burden. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you got to think about all these things going on between this, this, you know, the century or so span leading up into the, civil rights movement, there's a lot of just what you're saying, the isms that are so embedded into our culture. So uh, I think we often forget about that so much as, uh, you know, we, we hear the phrase all the time is that if we don't learn from the mistakes of the past, we're doomed to repeat them. So I sure. think that really acknowledging those wounds, those, those isms that you're talking about, that they're still here, they're still embedded in some of our cultural uh, thinking and, and, and things like that. And I remember when I was, uh, I think I was in first grade kindergarten and I remember a curriculum that was taught, it was taken away pretty quickly. And I, and I, as I get, as I got older, I realized I, I understand now why, but it was called Ebonics. Um, I don't <laughs> know if anyone else, Jonathan, you ever experienced that as a part of the curriculum, but basically, mm-hmm. um, it was teaching you how to speak well, but particularly from a different type of, of speech or language uh, that like, would you use, would you use with or wit things like yeah. that? Like I remember it was, it was taught like in the school system in Georgia and they took it away pretty quickly. But I remember yeah, it was like that. <laughs> early was 90. This was like early 90. So, yeah. Yeah. So that, that looking back now as an older, older man, I see it and I'm like, wow, like, that is so crazy that this was still some of the things, even like you talked about the tests and the exams and things like that, that were going on. It's, it's so fresh. It's so new. Um, yeah. And I think we often forget about it. Those, those kind of ideologies and, and isms are still here. They're still <laughs> somewhere in yeah. our culture, just kind of sometimes hidden. You have to look for them. Well, and if you think about it, you know, I remember, you know, my wife, she's got a master's of divinity. She's got, um, uh, you know, is, is working on, a, has a, uh, is kind of midway through a, a teaching uh, an education, master's in education. Um, well, well studied. 
Um, and she remembers um, on one of the standardized tests in high school, there being a question that she just didn't understand. What well, was cultural? Hmm. Now, if you imagine an ACT or an SAT, everyone would say, well, yeah, this is, you know, you got to have this in order to get into the good schools, right? But hmm. if it's written from a standpoint that your experience as a white person is the standard experience for Americans, but you didn't realize that black people have a completely different home life than you. And that we and that we only look the same when I come out of the door, but you have no idea what's happening within the four walls of my house. And by the way, it is vastly different life. It is a vastly different life. Um, but if you don't know that and you're writing the ACT or the SAT from the standpoint of, hey, what's the thing called that when you X, Y, Z and I can't come up with the word, it's not because I'm stupid. It's because I don't live the same life that you live. Mm. But now suddenly my ACT score is being used to determine what my future is going to look like. Mm -hmm. That's systemic racism. And again, it's not hatred. It's not about hatred. It's about a lie. And the lie is this is the standard. Mm -hmm. And what the effect of that lie is, is that some little girl from Memphis didn't get as high of an ACT score or an SAT score to get into the school that she wanted to. Mm -hmm. But then over time, that means that none of these Memphians got the ACT scores, the SAT scores that they were going for. But it doesn't mean that they weren't just as smart. It just meant that you have a different word for what you use. But if you're not willing to acknowledge that perhaps there's a life and an experience and a context outside of what you think is just common sense and is normal, then you're never going to think hey, we should go through this ACT or SAT test and make sure that black kids in Memphis use the same words. Hmm. Hmm. Because you are so, and honestly, this is not a, this is not a, a malicious uh, or having any malintent. You are so misinformed mm -hmm. Hmm. that you didn't realize we're living a completely different life. We just haven't told you about it. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that's where the conversations come in is one of listening. You know, it's not that you did something wrong. It's that that is that America has never really made it safe for, for, for us to be known. It's we've never been rewarded for being fully known. You know, you, you tell somebody there's a saying like my kids right now know when the door front door opens, you stop speaking. You don't say anything out loud because you don't want people to know your business. And that's that's a common black thing. I mean, it's a running joke is that you don't tell people what you're doing. Like you don't say it out loud, hmm. but it comes from because someone is going to take your stuff hmm. <laughs> because that has happened for 500 years. Yeah. Hmm. And so that's hmm. not, you know, we're not being paranoid. We're just using history as, as a predictor for what is definitely going to happen to you. You are definitely going to be taken advantage of by a white person. Because for 500 years, 400 years, that's the only experience that we've had. What would tell us something different? Because the past 20 have been different? Or because for eight years there was a black man in the White House? That didn't fix 400 years. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And so I think the conversation has to be had that allows us the freedom to say, hey, just so you know, I'm scared as crap <laughs> to go outside at night and take my garbage out. And then a white person who cares about me, not the issue, but cares about me, would say, EJ, why are you afraid to go to the to take your garbage out at night? Oh, well, because one time, though I live in a very affluent neighborhood and I'm an attorney and I have a certain type of automobile and a certain type of level of education, a police officer drove by my house and turned on his bright light 
and flashed it at me while I was standing in my driveway. And that to me meant I'm probably not safe in my driveway. Hmm. And then my white friend who cares about me says, that's heartbreaking, man. I don't know what it means to not be able to take your garbage out. And I say, yeah, I do every day. That's I have to decide to take my garbage out in the sunlight or I don't take it out that day. And, and, and that's not accusatory to my white friend. I don't want my white friend to feel bad about that. I don't even want my white friend to start taking his garbage out in the daytime. Like, I don't need you to feel what I'm feeling. I just need you to not think I'm crazy for saying it. Yeah, there's a, I've heartbreakingly, um, there's, there, there's been a lot of gaslighting, um, you know, just, I don't know, just, just like, I don't know, kind, kind of the, the, just, you know, it's, it's all in your head, systemic injustice isn't real, um, you know, and, and I love what you said, like, you know, you just, just, just want you to understand that we live in different worlds. Um, yeah. You know, that's, that's incredibly powerful. Um, like stepping out of your own context and your own social location, um, and saying, Hey, let, let me see the world through your eyes, you know, um, get, get out of myself, get out of my bubble. Um, yeah. good stuff, man. Um, and you, you, you hit, you, you kind of alluded to, um, something that I did want to, to mention in here, um, is, is the, the conversation about white privilege and, yeah. This is another one of those, like you called it a buzzword that people will run to the other side when you say it. Um, and I'm just, you, I, I, I talked to a, a black pastor about this and he said, um, you, you shouldn't feel guilty about that. You should use that, you know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. because, you know, guilt doesn't work um, in producing change. Um but he, he really framed it as don't see it as a guilt thing. See it as a stewardship opportunity um, to have these conversations because I, as a white male in America, I have the privilege to not have this conversation, you know, mm -hmm. because I'm not black. Um, so I have the privilege just to turn the blinders on um, and just walk away from this conversation and never pursue um seeing any change um you know amongst our black brothers and sisters in our systems um and i i don't know i i, I just again i i my heart in this is just kind of reframe some of these things um that that like you said people will run to the other side when you say them um and, and i i think that's a you know just, just kind of give me your your thoughts, EJ. But, but I think yeah. that that's the way I've been able to frame it for myself. Mm -hmm. um, like I have the privilege to walk away from this conversation. I have the privilege to um, not engage in this conversation, not seek change um, racially, um, see some, see just scales in our society, um, mm -hmm. make the minority um, part of the majority. You know instead of having that out crowd the in you know part of the in crowd you know mm -hmm. um and use use the privilege that i have um 
to have these conversations to seek change. Um, that that's kind of how how I've kind of framed that for myself. Um, what what are your thoughts on like you know uh, privilege? How you know constructive ways to to use um, privilege that we have? Yeah, I think that you hit the nail on the head. You know, it really is using your voice. That's it. That's what you know. This conversation surrounding the word allyship is is hitting on. Is that hey, listen, if you are in a place of privilege you know, become an ally of someone who doesn't have the same privilege. Um, and, I, you know, privilege, like you said, is one of those buzzwords. You hear it and people, you know, they cringe at it um, because they don't want to be told they have a privilege, you know, and because it's, it's, it's a guilt trip um, for some. And, and it especially hits on this idea that if you're white, you had a great life. That's not what privilege is about. And so I have to dispel that because I know tons of white people who have had lives way harder than I have had. One of my dearest friends used to have to use newspaper as toilet paper. I never had to do that. And he's white. <laughs> and I never had to do that ever as a kid. And um, and that's a big, big deal to me because I don't want people to think that when when the term privilege is tossed around, that it is um, that it is ignoring the difficulties that an individual may have had to face. For sure, if you grew up, you know, and your father or mother um, were abusive or were um, you know, addicted to substances, you're going to have a more difficult time and upbringing than someone who had two parents in the home who never dealt with any of that. And so privilege doesn't sweep away your life and just say, okay, well, who's white here? You're better off. And then who's black? You're worse off. That's not what it is. And anyone who has tried to dumb it down to that is not doing justice to to those terms or the or the, the point that needs to be conveyed. The term white privilege is referring to this reality that all other things remaining equal, a white person in America on their face has more privileges than a black person on their face. Um, and 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 I always say, you know, I have a friend who says, well, I had a really hard life growing up and I'm a white person. I, you know, I wasn't privileged. And it's like, yeah, but when we walk into a room together, they don't know from looking at you what your hard life was. They don't know whether you had a hard life. Um, and so sometimes you're given the benefit of the doubt. Now, privilege, my wife always says in her in her training, privilege happens on a spectrum. You know, you look at me and you compare me uh, as, a, as a man of color to a friend of mine who's a man of color in South Africa. And they think I'm privileged as an American because I don't have to do what's called load shedding. Load shedding right now is in South Africa. They have to they have to turn off their power. The power grid in their neighborhood goes away for scheduled times of the day, every day. Yeah. I don't know what that is. I get to use the internet whenever I want to. I have electricity whenever I want to. So I'm privileged. I am a privileged black man in America as compared to a black friend of mine in South Africa. Um, but that doesn't mean that, um, uh, that I've not had it hard. Um, and that doesn't mean that their life sucks either. It just means that as between the two of us comparatively, you have advantages that I don't have. And so what's the responsibility? Well, the Bible makes it clear. Listen, those responsibilities, when you have it better, take care of the widow and the orphan. Hmm. Like the Bible is very clear on that, 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 that people who are in positions of privilege or advantage or opportunity are supposed to lay all of that down and use it for the sake of the betterment of the people who are not going to get the, the opportunity in the biblical time 
widows and orphans being key among them. Hmm. And that's the mandate. That didn't change. Um, the only time that I see people having a hard time with that, because I think in principle, you go to a church and everyone says, yeah, 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 we're going to give to this mission uh, fund, you know, help these orphans in this th- in this developing country. Or we're going to help, you know, these widows, uh, this widow, she needs help moving in. And there's the men's ministry is going to help move them in. That's great. Everyone loves to do that. But they don't want to do it if it makes them feel like they are wrong somehow. And I, I have a lot of conversations with friends of mine who are white who say, listen, I feel like the, the term white privilege or white supremacy even makes it seem like just because I'm white, I'm bad. And I always say, hi, welcome to being black. <laughs> that's what that's exactly what we're talking about is yep. that just because of the color of my skin, I'm blank. Yes, you should not feel that way. Hi, welcome. This is what we are all we all have been feeling for a very, very long time. Yeah. Um, and so the opportunity is there for all of us, all of us, because all of us have privilege. I'm right-handed. So back to that example, I have privilege. As a right-handed person in America, I have a privilege. I didn't even know until high school that left-handed people needed a different um, desk for Scantron tests, like the fill in the bubble with the number two pencil. They They use a different arm. The arm is on the right side. So how well, comparatively, is a left-handed person going to take the test as compared to me if it's a time test? Well, as well as I'd have to do it if I were using a left-handed test. Um, And so all of those echoes of privilege float around everywhere, all day. There's privilege. We're dancing in and out of it. And the, the task is to be cognizant of the fact that in some area of our lives, each of our lives, we are privileged in some way. Yeah, I have I have two healthy, beautiful baby boys. Um, they've they 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 don't have any any. Uh, they had no problems, um, significant problems being born. That's a privilege. I live in privilege for that. I'm not wrong for that, and my boys don't. They they're not horrible, and I'm not horrible, and I shouldn't you know I shouldn't be woe is me or you know ashamed of that privilege. But it is a privilege. So what it means is I should be trying to help people who don't have that privilege. That's just the gospel. Like that's not a hard, that's not something about with with which to disagree. Um, but and we don't disagree in any space except race. We don't actually put up a fight on this for any area except when it comes to race. And the bigger question is how come? Why why is why is race one where we don't like the way it feels? We'll do it with our money. We'll do it with our time. We'll do it where we have privilege with resources, houses. Uh, land, we will gladly use it. But when the idea of privilege is connected to your race, oh, there's a bristle. Hmm. Yeah. And at the very least, we have to say, hmm, why is that? Why? Yeah. Um, honestly, on that, EJ, I would probably say that um, America has taught implicit bias in people. Um and it's 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 in hearts and it's things that are uncomfortable um and and people just don't want to acknowledge you know um because america has taught a lot of a lot of the the racism and the white supremacy um these ideologies that we have um you you look at um you know news throughout the years and like who's you know who's 
whose face did they usually show? Who's, whose mugshot um, do they usually show? Like they're usually showing you a picture of a black man, you know, yeah. from kind of painting this, this picture of um, they're supposed to be, you're supposed to be afraid of the black man, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, Always up to something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you a quick story on that. You know, I live in a, I, I, well, so two days ago, I was uh, taking my trash out and a car pulled up and the woman said, oh my gosh, hey. And I, I don't know who the lady is. She was a black woman. And she said, I didn't know that there are other black people in this neighborhood. And it's true because there's not many black people at all in this neighborhood. And I said, oh, it's good to meet you and connected or whatever. And that was fine. Um, but she's the first black person that I've seen in my neighborhood at all in, in the years that I've lived here. Um, she, uh, I'm sorry. So in my neighborhood a couple of years ago, there was a break-in and the police department issued this whole thing to the HOA and said, Hey, there was a break-in. Um, we don't know, you know, we're, we're investigating it. And then they said, um, residents reported seeing a black man selling newspaper. Um, and then we'll keep you up to date. And I immediately was like, Okay, well, wait. I'm a black man. <laughs> like, what is that? That's not a description. What? What kind of like? That's not even suspicious. A black man selling newspapers not is not suspicious unless you really kind of think it is suspicious. But yeah. what's suspicious about a black man selling newspaper? Yeah. Except, yes, you've bought the lie that black people don't belong here, and if they're here, acting like they're selling newspaper, they're probably breaking into your house. That's the lie. You did you believe that because if the police thought it was relevant to say that as a suspicious thing, then somehow we've decided collectively as a community, that would be a suspicious thing, a black person, right? Selling newspaper. Hmm. So then they came out after a week and a half of me, like really being scared for my life that somebody was going to go vigilante in my neighborhood and, and, and shoot me as a black man. Um, and they said, okay, we found the person. Um, it turned out the black person was really just selling newspaper. But yeah, of course he was. Mm. Of course he was. But now you've made him a target. You've made me a target. You've made the idea of any black person in our neighborhood a target. Because we all know that black people are suspicious where they're not supposed to be, right? Yeah. But no, that's not the case. If a white person were walking down the street, you wouldn't have said a white person was mowing lawns. That would have just been normal. Yep. And and that's that's again implicit bias to your point. That is that is there laying just kind of underneath the surface at all times. Yep. Yeah. Um. Man, thank thanks for sharing that story, EJ, and kind of helping us understand um, how implicit bias can creep in and get taught. Um, by by news by even even by police um and again like you know with these conversations i you know people will jump to your anti-police or you hate police right um, i love the police by the way i love law enforcement officers who take care of people yeah man um so some just just some like some points i want to hit on as far as like you know we've been talking about like inequalities, um, you know, systemic injustice. And I've written down some, some specific examples um, just so like our listeners can know if nobody's heard um, about this stuff. Like the, the first example is um, the United States holds 25% of the, 
um, of the world's prison population, and we that's that's the highest of the world. The United States holds the highest prison population. Um, the majority being black and Hispanic. Um, so, and I, I, I think the, I think the, it go, it goes going back to the implicit bias and, and the caricatures that, you know, get created, um, when people say, well, the, the, the reason that, you know, um, you know, the high uh, majority of people in prison are black is because, well, um, you know, they have a culture of poverty or, you know, they're, you know, there's gun violence and, you know, they'll throw like drugs in there and like just, you know, demonize the black community. Um, when there's a lot of things that's tied to that, there, there's a lot of things that's, that's tied to why is majority of this in the U.S. prison population, majority black and Hispanic. Mm-hmm. Um, another point is, you know, um, black people in America and specifically black men. And a lot of studies have you know, been done on this and you, you, you can look it up. Um, but, um, three times more likely to have a negative encounter and even die under the use of force from a police officer. Um, and so w- one thing that I've heard is like, you know, with police brutality, um, you know, people will go to, you know, it, it's just an isolated incident, you know, um, when in reality, it's 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 not happening in a vacuum. It's happening in a context. You know, yeah. there's a pattern there, um, and so that that's where you know we say like we don't hate the police, but we know there needs to be reform in policing, right? Um, yeah, I think you know that's that's one of those. Um, you know, that's one of those, listen, what's the best way to handle this? And it's it's almost like if you're not one of the affected groups of uh, or the groups that are affected most by um, unfair policing, um, then don't don't throw in people's faces, you know, how great some police officers are. That's not a fix. <laughs> and and you're not really at risk. Right. Of, of ever dealing with this in that in that way. And so just maybe, again, you know, listen to the stories of the people who are negatively impacted maybe in a way that is different from the way that you're impacted and then you know just like we deal with like you know and it's, and it's a common thing we have to rape victims or you know people who 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 allege sexual assault we don't say mm, yeah well you know but that happens you know where we don't want to believe the person i don't know why that happens but um when it comes to police performance like listen believe the people who are negatively affected in these ways and give them the benefit of the doubt. It says, man, I don't live that, but if you're telling me that an authority figure is doing X, Y, Z to you and people who look like you on a regular basis, then let's call them to task and ask what's going on here. Like, let, and then let's figure out how we, how we need to reform this so it works differently. You know, a big thing that people have been talking about, that hashtag that was going around, you know, last year deep on the police that got everybody up in arms because of course, you know, we would have chaos if we defund the police. What you know, and it's like, well, well, maybe not the best use of words. It's really we're talking about reallocating resources um, to yep. remove funds from the police, right? Um, and to reallocate them to things like mental health professionals, so that counselors are showing up to um, 
to domestic violence uh, issues or to um, a, to a child who is saying that they feel suicidal or whatever the case may be instead of the police officers because we call the police for everything in the United mm -hmm. States and people in the U.S. would be surprised to know that's just not how the rest of the world works. <laughs> yeah, um, they don't. They do not call the police for most of the things that we call the police for. All we have is nine one one, and you call the police, and the police come. That's just that's that's what we have in America. That's not the system elsewhere, and that's not normal elsewhere. It's only normal to us. Yeah, mm -hmm. and the 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 last one that that I really this 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 really connects to. Um, you know, the, the prison population in the U.S. and, you know, the majority being uh, Black and Hispanic, you know, the, the 18 um, to 1 sentencing disparity um, between crack and uh, powdered cocaine. Um, yes. In other words, you know, it's it's eight. It takes 18 times more powder cocaine, which historically um, most um, white communities use was powder cocaine. Um yeah. Then, then crack to earn the same sentence in federal prison, and, and crack, you know, being used primarily by communities of color. Yeah. Um, and you know that's that's tied to um, the war on drugs. Um, yeah. You know, Breonna Taylor. So. Like, like if we're if you know we we talked earlier about uh, effects today from things of the past. Breonna Taylor is an example of effects of the war on drugs. You know. Yeah. You know, yeah. her death is um, just just an echo of uh, and, and an effect from the war on drugs. Um, so, yeah, like like I said, I just wanted to, you know, give you guys those, guys those things. Um, if you didn't know um, about these inequalities that we've been talking about, these disparities that people want to see change. Um, and I'll, let, let me say one last thing before we kind of. Uh, round this out um so as as far as the the activists or people that are engaging these issues and even the ones that are not regenerated are not believers in jesus i believe in the common grace of god um i i think we we kind of throw out anybody that's trying to, to make any social change or any good. Um, I, I think in, in God's common grace, um, a lot of these people can and are doing good in, you know, pursuing justice, pursuing social change. Um, so I, I just, I just don't think we just need to throw, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know? Um, and, and understand what there are some good things happening um, in these social spaces, even from people that um, may not be followers of Jesus. Like, you get what I'm saying? Um, because yeah, I, no, I, absolutely. I, I fully believe in common grace, and I believe that people are, that are not regenerated can do good. Yeah. You know, I think it's, you know, it, 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 is, it is the church that should be on the front lines. Um, yeah. You know, the Bible talks about it being our inheritance. You know, these are the things that are, are literally ours to pick up and do and to work through um, social justice um, and, and, and justice being part of the foundation of God's throne. Like this is vastly important to God um, and to his eternal kingdom. Like if you're not passionate about justice, my wife, my wife said the other day, if people aren't passionate about justice, they're really not going to like heaven. 
because this mm. this is just so fundamental to mm. um and not your version of justice either god's version of justice um it's so fundamental and intrinsic to what eternity is going to be like you're not going to enjoy this um you're not going to enjoy this paradise but um but god will make rocks cry out and he will bring help um even when the church is not in its place i know that he god loves his bride and and i'm not going to i'm not going to slam the bride of christ we are we as the as the body of believers are his beloved and he loves us and he wants to to have us be a very very present part of his plan for redemption um on earth um but if we get stubborn he will cause rock, rocks to cry out and mm-hmm. he will he will bring help wherever he has to uh the bible says that the, the heart of the king is in his hands and that that means to me that he is going to shift things in any way that he needs to, to accomplish his purposes. And some of those things are, to your point, that people who are non-believers in organizations that are not ministries, um, people that you've never heard of, people that you that probably would never set foot in a church. And honestly, in many instances, people who are um, adherents to other faiths can still be vigilant, passionate, and effective in the areas of justice and social justice. And so that's going to be something really important is like, hey, step out of the echo chamber. Don't just listen to the people who, you know, high five you on Sundays because they're not they're they're not the people that God called you to save. The people that God called us to serve are the people who were not willing to high five us. Hmm. Hmm. And we should be looking for the opportunities to minister to and to hear the hearts of the, the cries of those people, not the people that sit with us in church. And so you, you all, your litmus test almost becomes, hey, who's not like me? How can I hear them? How can I listen? How can I have compassion? That's exactly what Jesus did, whether it was the woman at the well or the tax collectors. Who's not like me? Who's not perfect? Who's not holy? Who's not yielded? Who is not aware of their identity in, in my father? Mm-hmm. Let me go hang with them. Let me go hear what they're passionate about. That's not to say I'm condoning. That's not to say that I'm kicking it with them and that this is my new tribe. This is to say, let me go and bring light there. Let me see how I can serve them. And and any time that the believers got caught up in who was going to be greatest in the kingdom among them um, or how Jesus was going to um, flex and make sure that everybody knew that Christians are the best is when they got rebuked. Mm-hmm. that was the get behind me satan you know what i mean like that was that was that and um and we just we don't have time to be there you know we do not have time to be caught there we have we have only the time right now to be about advancing the kingdom of god and reaching the lost that's just period that's all that's all we are here to do if we're not going to do that then we should just go to heaven like he should just call anyone who doesn't want to be about that he can call us home now like we're just we're done We've finished the thing we were going to do here, but that's not what the case is. We have so much to do. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's that's so good. I that, those are some great points. They're very applicable. Uh, thanks, EJ, for uh, your heart and your willingness to uh, share with us and uh, open up to us and, and share your story. And um, I'm I, uh, I'm reminded, and and you talked and hinted on it a little bit, but like you can't read scripture and not see justice. 
Yeah. Uh, you can't. God is a God of justice. He fights for those who are weak. He fight. He, he's a warrior God. He he. I mean, you can see it throughout the whole Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, and 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 surrounding this picture of the gospel. And so that's so good. And I think we we always forget, you know, that the ju- God is God is also a judge. He but yeah. he rules yeah. justly and and he carries out uh, judgment to those who who, who afflict, you know, and, and, yeah. and things like that. So I think that's awesome. So with saying all of that, all the things that we talked about, um, on this podcast, uh, to from social justice, to, uh, entering into other people's particular spaces to, to really understand what's going on and really acknowledging, uh, where do you think we go from here? Um, we always like to on this podcast to be, uh, not as, not only conversational, but practical in the way that we apply what we talk about here. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think, um, I think it's conversations. I think it's, you know, find, you know, everyone's on social media. So that's the easy thing, right. Is to, you know, find some people whose voices are big in areas where you would not normally have gone and follow them. Even if you disagree with them, follow them and, and figure out what they're saying. Um, I'm not saying go and follow someone who's like, you know, <laughs> don't go crazy on it. But I'm saying mm-hmm. someone who's respected outside of the space where you would have normally have given respect and find out why, what they're saying, what they're really getting at and, and pay attention to those conversations um, and find out what, what can be done. But then also, you know, it really is for the believer, pray about what what pricks your heart. You know, for me, and, and it doesn't have to be just in the area of race. You know, for me, my heart was pricked about um, about anti-trafficking years ago. So that means that not only am I about social justice for black people in America and making sure that me and my tribe are safe, but I'm really worried about the kids in Cambodia who are sold into sexual slavery. Or I'm really concerned about the white kids in Atlanta who are sold into slavery hmm. for, for sexual slavery or for, for, for labor. And... Um, and thinking about what justice looks like outside of your immediate context is a really, really great way to become active in it and to, 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 um, to foster a heart like the Father's that says, I am concerned about things and people outside of myself. And so maybe the thing for, for some people is find the thing that you're passionate about outside of your circle. Like what is something that really doesn't affect you? wouldn't otherwise affect you and yours, but that you feel like God is, you know, kind of giving you a passion for. Um, But then the other thing is, you know, above, I don't want to make it seem like resources or everything, but giving is a big deal, you know, and we put our money where, uh, where we support things and what we believe in. And I think finding a way to contribute, if you, even if you can't, you know, contribute time and you're not marching or anything, um, give your money to organizations that you feel like will be your hands and feet someplace. And I'm not talking about outside the U.S. We're now the mission field. I know many, many people from outside the U.S. that have come here because they view us as an area of desolation, of spiritual and, and, and practical desolation. And I know that we in the USA don't want to think that. We think we're the greatest country on earth. But there are a lot of people who beg to differ with us. And they mm-hmm. think that we're in desperate need of help. And mm-hmm. so um, don't just focus your dollars on developing countries. They're needed there. But there's neighborhoods down the street from you that could probably benefit from 50 bucks or 100 bucks or $10 a week. There are mothers, single mothers, who would definitely need 
help getting a meal tonight on the on the dinner table. Pray about those needs and say, God, how can I be of practical use where I am planted? Uh, my wife talks, and I keep talking about my wife just because she's way smarter than me, and she does a lot of the, these conversations, but she talks a lot about Nehemiah and the building, rebuilding of the wall, and this idea that everybody was just doing what they could do in front of them. That biblically, like the work that, that they were to do was not across the street or in their neighbor's yard. It was like, hey, build your section of the wall. And if each of us build our respective sections of the wall, we'll have built a wall together. And so um, you don't have to travel anywhere. You don't have to like, you know, give to somebody across the country. You can look within a four block radius of you probably and find someone who needs help. Help them. Incredible points, EJ. Thanks for just sharing those just practical things um, that, you know, wherever somebody's at right now, they can do um, to really get engaged in this conversation. Um, I, I really hope this episode kind of broke down some of these um, deflections and, and things that um, people um, get called whenever you start talking about social justice and if you're a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, I really hope this, you know, kind of squashed the, you know, cultural Marxist mm-hmm. or you're a socialist mm-hmm. or, you know, any of that stuff. I really hope this framed it from a gospel perspective, from a compassionate perspective, and from something that we can tangibly get involved in as believers because it has a gospel implication to it. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to end it... Um, with um with a scripture verse um it's out of amos 5 and it specifically talks about um, justice um but it says they hate the one who convicts the guilty at the city gate and they despise the one who speaks with integrity therefore because you trample on the poor and exact a grain tax from him you will never live in the houses of cut stone you have built you will never drink the wine from the lush vineyards you have planted for I know your crimes are many and your sins are innumerable. Innumerable. The oppress the righteous, take a bribe, and deprive the poor of justice at the city gates. And then it jumps down to um, verse twenty-four, and this where this is where it really kind of comes to. But let justice flow like water, and righteousness like an unfailing stream. Mm. So that you know that that first part I read, it was saying, you you've ignored justice, you know, you you've ignored the port, the city gate. But then it, in twenty four it says, let justice flow like a river, you know. Yeah. And so I really wanted to end on that kind of hit the nail on the head that our God that we serve cares about justice. Um. So. Yeah. EJ. Thank you um, so much, brother, for coming on here, um, just sharing your perspective, sharing your experience, and, and, and just being willing to have this conversation. Yeah. No, thank you so much for having me. It, you guys have, like you know, we, we talked about before, you guys just have hearts for God. It's so abundantly clear. And I love the teachability and the idea that you don't necessarily, um, you know, pretend to know all the answers or how to fix it, you know, and I think... Um, I don't either, <laughs> even as a black man in America who could riff on 
pretty much any topic you throw my way or ask me about as it relates to being Black in America and these buzzwords and all that, I don't have the answers. I have what I believe and what I've experienced, and I have ideas about what a solution or or which direction to walk in for a solution based on the word of God. And that's all I got. But I think that that's all that God actually requires of all of us, you know, is that we, we love God and we love people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's where we start. So thank you all for loving God. And thank you all for loving me and, and, and mm-hmm. for loving people um, the way that you do through this podcast. I, I pray that it really, really reaches and blesses a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. Yeah, um, man. Yeah. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Um, check out EJ on Instagram. Um, and I'll, I'll actually, I'll go ahead and link, um, EJ's Instagram page, um, in the show notes. So you guys can go check him out and follow him. Um, we'll catch in on the next episode of the Peaks and Valleys podcast. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, um, subscribe for us, leave us a review, share this with a, with a friend and we'll catch you on the next episode. When I immerse myself in the spirit of unique and mysterious creativity, then the spirit of God pulls me magnetically, irresistibly, to a world flowing with justice. The kingdom of God seems possible.